Well, good morning, everybody. Man, it is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we have not met before, my name is Austin Fisher. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors, and we are so glad that you joined us today. When you walked in, you should have received uh, a Connect card. reason everybody got one today is, you know, summer's, summer's wrapping up. We're getting started into the fall, and so it is a great time to jump in and either get connected or reconnected here at the Vista. Ton of options for you to choose from. I'm going to mention some of them at the end of the service. Specifically, though, I want to highlight something, and that is that in September, we're going to do something called our six-week challenge. What we do is challenge everybody who's not in a small group to just try one out for six weeks. You know, you can do anything for six weeks and just give it a whirl, see what it's like. In order to make that happen, though, uh, we are going to need a number of new small groups. And so we need like 30 to 50 new small groups to get started here over the next month and a half. I believe that it can happen. In order to lead one of these groups, you do not have to be some genius theologian or biblical scholar. You just got to be somebody who loves Jesus and you're willing to open up your home to other people. We'll train you up and do the rest for you. So if you are interested in that or learning more about it, please fill it out on the Connect card and I will remind you at the end of the service what to do with it. All right, our six-week challenge. So today, we are starting a brand new series called Exploring the Essentials. I really like this graphic. Exploring the Essentials because for the next six weeks, we are going to explore some of the beliefs and practices that are essential to historic, orthodox Christian faith. And we wanted to start off the fall with this series for a couple of different reasons. First off, one of the things that I love about our church is that we have lots of people here who are just pretty new to this whole Jesus thing. So it's helpful to periodically spending some time getting back to the basics of what it really means to be a Christian. Because one of the really unfortunate things about churches is they have this habit of becoming filled with Christians. (laughs) Maybe you've noticed this. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when... When you end up just surrounded by people who, who think and act like you, it's really easy for us to get this kind of collective amnesia where we just slowly forget who we are and what exactly it is that we're doing here. And so it's very, very important. And I love that we have lots of people at our church who are either new to or skeptical about faith because they help us make sure that we don't take our faith for granted because it's very easy to take your faith for granted. My... Um, my oldest son, he's getting to the age now where he's, he's starting to enjoy watching sports with me a little bit, which is fantastic. And so the other day, we were engaging in one of those most ancient and sacred of father-son traditions. We were watching Sports Center together. Every father wants to baptize his little boy and then watch Sports Center with him, preferably in that order. So we're watching Sports Center. And this little segment comes on about the Cowboys and the Cowboys' upcoming season. The Cowboys, you know, are very good in July and August. Every single year, we're phenomenal. So, you know, we're really excited about the Cowboys. You know, I'm excited. And they're talking about the season and Dak's back and all this stuff. And Wyatt turns to me and he says, Daddy, why do we love the Cowboys? You know, and so I, I, I backhand him across the room and, no, sitting to bed without supper, no. No, but it it was something that caught me a little bit off guard because, y'all, you've got to understand in the Fisher household, the Fisher clan, we come from a long line of Cowboys fans. And so I just assumed that he must just know that we love the Cowboys because Christ commanded it. You know, it's, it's, 
don't think you have to explain these things to your children, but he didn't know. And so that's the first reason why we're doing this series, because it's important to keep our ancient faith fresh by brushing up on the essentials, okay? So that's reason one. Second reason we wanted to start the fall off with this series is it gives us just a little bit of space and time to remind ourselves who we are as a church. Because few things say more about a church than what it considers essential. Now, you want to learn what a church is really like? You get a feel for what they consider essential, and you'll know everything you need to know about a church. If you've been through our membership class, and I hope you have, uh, then you have frequently heard us talk about the importance of churches having both an open hand and a closed hand. Churches need to have an open hand and a closed hand. Of course, the idea is that it is important for churches to have an open hand, meaning an attitude of tolerance and humility and friendliness because there are many, many, many things that we as Christians can cheerfully agree to disagree on. How old is the earth? How should we vote? What's the role of men and women in the church, in the household? When is Jesus coming back? What's it going to look like? Christians have always, reasonable, faithful Christians have always disagreed about those things. And so they must be placed in an open hand. Now, sadly, though, many churches do not have an open hand. But instead, they've got two closed hands. And they like to punch you in the face with both of them. You ever been to a church like that? You walk in and it's just a, it's a sparring session. You know, they're, they're, everything is a hill to die on. And they'll fight about everything. And they act like they and only they really read the Bible and take it seriously. Well, we're just a very biblical church. We're a very gospel-centered church. Blah, 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 blah. As if everybody else is not. And so healthy churches have an open hand. It's very important that healthy churches have an open hand. You don't want to be a part of a church that does not have an open hand unless you want to spend your entirety in that church being punched in the face with two closed hands, right? But healthy churches also have a closed hand. Meaning what? Meaning they have a firm, steadfast, stubborn commitment to fight for, preserve, and honor the essentials of the Christian faith because here's the deal. You don't get to make Christianity up. You don't get to make Christianity up. And making Christianity up is a very powerful temptation for people like you and me because we really like this idea that we're supposed to, you know, think for ourselves and make up our own minds. And so if there are parts of Christianity that bother us for whatever reason, we feel like we have this God-given right and responsibility to just edit and update the faith so that it better suits our preferences. Right? But the funny thing about this is there is nothing more unoriginal, nothing more conformist than our infatuation with this very modern idea that we're all supposed to think for ourselves and make up our own minds and be unique just like everybody else. Now, you're supposed to be unique, just like everybody else. I love the way Stanley Hauerwas says this. He's my guy. I love Stanley Hauerwas. He says, as Americans, we, uh, we pride ourselves on being individuals who defy the crowd. We think for ourselves. We make up our own minds. 
But there is no more conformist message than the presumption that we should each make up our own minds because you don't get to make Christianity up. Which brings us to a very important question. Namely, if, if you don't get to make Christianity up and I don't get to make Christianity up, who does? Who does get to decide what is essential Christian faith? And the only possible way to answer that question is to say that Christianity was created by God in Christ and that Christ then entrusted the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit with this work of receiving, preserving, and then passing on the faith. Right? This work is embodied most clearly in the formation of the Bible and then also the early Christian creeds. If you do not know what a creed is, uh, it is not this. Isn't that a terrible? I know that's a terrible joke. That's a dad joke, isn't it? But in my defense, I am a dad. A creed is also not this. Rather, a creed is a short story summarization of the Christian essentials. Okay? A creed is a short story summarization of the Christian essentials. The most important creed is known as the Nicene Creed. came up within about the 4th century. And it is the result, y'all, of hundreds of years of careful, prayerful thought and deliberation. And its genius is in the way it takes the biblical story, which is pretty big and pretty wild, right? And it compresses it into a few essential Christian beliefs that help make sure the church stays grounded, right? Scripture and the creeds, they teach us to receive the faith instead of making it up because, again, we don't get to make Christianity up. And there are a couple of different ways that we can accidentally fall into this trap of making Christianity up for ourselves, right? Nobody ever means to do it, but it happens, and it happens all the time. Now, I like to call the first trap the fundamentalist temptation, right? the fundamentalist temptation. And the fundamentalist temptation involves making non-essential things essential, right? It's making Christianity up by adding to it. To return to our open and closed-hand metaphor, right? the fundamentalist temptation is to take things that belong in an open hand and smuggle them into a closed hand. So what does it look like? For example, believing in the authority of the Bible, right? Most of you have your Bibles with you and you ought to bring them every Sunday. Believing in the authority of the Bible is an essential, closed-hand, orthodox Christian belief. The church throughout space and time has affirmed that we must submit to the authority of the Bible. That is a closed-hand belief. But believing in the authority of your interpretation of the Bible... You see the difference there. Believing in the authority of your interpretation of the Bible is A, very, very silly because you don't know near as much as you think you do. And B, that's you making Christianity up for yourself because it's you arrogantly superseding the wisdom of the church by trying to make something essential that the church has said is not essential and that's you making Christianity up. And you don't get to make Christianity up. The authority of your interpretation of the Bible is not an essential historic Orthodox Christian belief. The authority of the Bible, yes. The authority of your interpretation of the Bible, no. 
Right? So that's the first way we make Christianity up for ourselves, the fundamentalist temptation. We're all prone to it from time to time. And then the second way that we fall into this trap of making Christianity up for ourselves is what I like to call the progressive temptation, and it involves the opposite. It's making essential things non-essential. It's making Christianity up by subtracting from it. It is taking things that belong in a closed hand and either placing them in an open hand or a little smoke and mirrors, a little abracadabra, making it disappear altogether. What does that look like? Well, I was talking to this guy one time. Great guy. Smart guy. Clearly thought of himself as like a very, you know, like a very radical thinker. And so he tells me that he is, he's a Christian, but he doesn't believe in the resurrection. You know, like he's, he's down with JC, he likes a lot of stuff that Jesus taught, it's good, but the whole resurrection thing, you know, man, it's just a little, it's a little kooky. A dead man raised from the dead, that's not what dead people do, that's what makes dead people dead, right? And so I told him, I told him that I had no doubt that God loved him unconditionally. But he wasn't a Christian because you don't get to make Christianity up. And so saying that you're a Christian who doesn't believe in the resurrection, man, that's like saying you're a Republican who loves Bernie. You're a Democrat who loves Donald. You're a vegan who loves Millers. No, you're not. (laughs) Because you don't get to make Christianity up. None of us get to make Christianity up. If you want to follow some religion where you believe in Jesus but not the resurrection, call it the personal religion of Bob, which is fine, but don't call it Christianity because it's not because you don't get to make Christianity up. And so all that said, we are going to spend the next six weeks exploring some of the essential beliefs and practices of Christian faith to make sure that our faith stays both faithful and fresh. Because that's the trick. You want your faith to stay faithful, right? You want it to stay Christian, but you also want it to stay fresh. In doing that, we will be walking through the six doctrines that we call primary doctrines here at the Vista, meaning doctrines that the church, not the Vista, the Vista didn't make up Christianity, right? That the church, capital C, throughout space and time has affirmed as being essential to historic Orthodox Christian faith. You want to go on our website and see those. If you haven't been to our membership class, it's at thevista.tv slash what we believe we will start out with what we believe about God. Always a good place to start. All right, so here's what Vista following the church says about God. We believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe the three persons of the Trinity are equal in power, glory, and love. It's not that one person is the boss calling the shots and the other two are his minions. We believe Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity who became flesh in the incarnation to reveal God and reconcile creation. And so now we are going to turn to a passage in our Bibles that I think provides the best brief, precise summary of what Christians believe about God. So if you've got your Bibles, and again, I always encourage you to, to bring them. We'll be in John 1. We'll read verses 1 through 18. All right, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel first 18 verses of it and it will also be up here on the screen for you if you would like to read along it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines, and the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it or overpower it. Now there came a man from God whose name was John. It was John the baptizer, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, every woman. He was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verses 14 through 18 now, this this good stuff here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John testified about him and cried out saying, This is he of whom I said, Hey, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he, no big deal, existed before me. Now for his grace and for his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father who is close to the Father's heart. He has explained him. And John 1, verses 1 through 18. So this very first sentence, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is one of the most loaded sentences in the entire Bible. The very first phrase of this very first sentence, in the beginning is, of course, an echo of, anybody hear that echo from another place in the Bible? It's that echo of what? Of Genesis 1. And the very first phrase, the very first word in the entire Bible, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so notice what John is doing here by doing this, right? He uses the very first phrase of the Bible, the very first phrase of his gospel. He's telling us that this story that he's about to tell is connected to the story of the Old Testament. The story of Israel's God, who is the infinite creator and maker of all that is. He is telling us that the God who created the world and then Israel is up to something new to redeem the world. And so what's this new thing that God is up to? Well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and then here comes the first bombshell, and the Word was God. The word was God. So there's the one true God, okay, the maker of heaven and earth. But then there's this word of God who is in some sense different than God, but who is in another sense fully God too. Now raise your hand if you think the person beside you has some questions about this. Yeah, it's some pretty complicated stuff. It took the church hundreds of years to figure it out and come to this idea of the doctrine of the Trinity. So there's this one God, but it's, it's three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And let's jump ahead now to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here we have another one of the most loaded sentences in the entire Bible because we're told that this Word of God who is fully God became flesh. 
This will come to be known as the doctrine of the incarnation, a little fancy word. What it means is that in Jesus of Nazareth, the infinite creator God takes on flesh and becomes a human. Not pretends to be a human for a little while, not kind of human, but this word of God who is fully God becomes fully human to God knows what it's like to be a human. Think about that. And then is this wonderful little phrase in the middle of verse 14 puts it. I love this. God became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now this phrase, he dwelt among us, literally means he set up his tent among us. And of course here we hear another echo from the Old Testament. Could you hear that one? We hear an echo of the book of Exodus this time. You remember the story? God liberates the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. He sends them out into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he tells them to build him a tabernacle, a tent that will be the visible, tangible sign of his presence in their midst. It's God telling them, hey, I know this thing is rough. You're out there in the middle of the wilderness. And so I wanted to be clear that I'm here with you, man. I'm all in. I'm not out there somewhere doing God stuff. I am right in the middle of your situation. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this verse in his translation of the Bible. Here's what he says of John 1, verse 14. He says, um, get it up there on the screen. The word became flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that good? God said, hey, you better make some room. I'm coming in. Not pulling you out. I'm coming into this thing. And now let's move on to the very last sentence in our passage. Verse 18. I think this is my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Nobody's ever seen God, but God, the only Son who is close to the Father's heart, has explained Him. Now, raise your hand if you have ever wondered what God is like. Anybody? That's probably kind of why most of you are here, yeah? Yeah. I've spent a lot of my life wondering what God is like because I don't know about you, but man, I have heard... A lot of different things about the big guy. I have heard that God is, is nice. I've heard that God is very mean. I've heard that God is, you know, just kind of indifferent to the goings-ons here on planet Earth. And I've heard that God is, is very judgmental and harsh. And I've heard that God would never judge anyone. I've heard that God wouldn't hurt a fly. And I've heard that God has destroyed people and cultures and nations and, and, and fits of fury and divine temper tantrums, you know. And of course, the trickiest part about all this is that I have heard the Bible used to justify all of it. Because on the surface, the Bible seems to say a lot of different things about God. And so how are we supposed to know what God is like when so many different things have been said about God? It's a pretty big question. How long do we have? Right? And so notice, y'all, how John takes the most important and complicated question that has ever been asked. What is God like? And he answers it with the most simple and beautiful statement that's ever been spoken. Here's what John says. God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. Right? And let's let this settle in for just a moment or maybe the rest of your life because think about this I know that you have heard so many different things about God I know that you have thought 
so many different things about God. But when you let God speak for God's self, here's what God says. Jesus has explained me. That's what John 1.18 says. Jesus has explained me, which means you don't have to wonder what I'm like anymore because Jesus is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about God because Jesus is God. And so if you don't know what God is like, then it's not because God hadn't told you. It's because you haven't listened to what God has to say because what God has to say is Jesus. That's what God says. Jesus has explained me. Jesus is my autobiography. You don't have to wonder who I am anymore, man. I am Jesus. Jesus is the infinite God in human flesh. And there is so much more that we could say here. But I want to wrap up by talking for just a minute about what it really means to believe this. To believe in this God. To believe in the Christian God. Because in my experience, there are a lot of us who think that we believe in God but we don't actually believe in God. So let's end with this question. What does it mean to believe something? You ever thought about that? What does it really mean to believe something? Well, for my money, uh, the best definition of belief comes from a guy named Dallas Willard. I love Dallas Willard. Here's what he says about belief. He says, we don't believe something by merely saying that we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. No, we believe something when we act as if it were true. Believing something is acting like it's true. Isn't that a good definition? I love that definition. You believe something when you act like it's true. And so notice, this means that you and I think that we believe a lot of stuff that we do not actually believe. We just think it. But just thinking it is not believing it. For example, Jesus once said that it's more blessed to give than receive. You remember that? It's more blessed to give than receive. Do you believe that? And of course, the only possible way to answer that question is to do what? It's to look at your bank account. Do you act like it's true? And if you don't act like it's true, then you don't believe that it's more blessed to give than receive. Okay? See how it works? And now I'm going to say something that is, it's going to be a little bit abrasive. Okay? But just hear me out. Nobody leave. We're too close to the end for you to leave now. Okay? Just hear me out. It's meant to get your attention. Then I'll explain. If believing something means acting like it's true, then if you don't pray, you don't believe in God. We good? No? Okay. Good. If believing something means you act like it's true, then if you don't pray, then man, you just don't believe in God. Now, to be clear, you might think you believe in God. You might even even want to believe in God, but you're just not yet at a place where you really believe in God because more than anything else, prayer is what we do when we believe in God. Or to put it even stronger, y'all, praying, technically praying, is believing in God. It is what believing that Jesus is the one true God looks like. It doesn't matter if you think it. Praying is believing in God. And this is also why prayer can be so hard. Raise your hand if you think the person beside you thinks prayer is hard. Yeah, it is. Prayer is hard, y'all. 
Here's why. It makes sense. Because think about it. Just think about it. So many of the things that we do as Christians, they don't necessarily require us to believe in God. Hey, you can show up here on a Sunday and listen to an awesome band. That's better than sitting in your pajamas eating oatmeal. You know, I don't know if people eat oatmeal. Um, you know, you can have some great friends and like community. Like nobody wants to be lonely. You can help out in your neighborhood. And all those things are great. But none of them actually require us to believe in God. Right? We could just do all those things because they make us feel good. Make us feel happy, you know, and connected and generous. But prayer is really hard to do if you don't believe in God because it just seems like such a waste of time, doesn't it? I'll speak for myself, it does to me. And that's why I can tell you with absolute certainty and the full authority of Jesus and the church behind me that the most important thing that you can do as a Christian is learn how to pray. Because more than anything else, prayer will teach you how to believe in God. And the last thing I'll say is that you will probably need help learning how to pray. And I don't know where it came from, but somewhere along the way, a lot of us got this idea that we're just, you know, like, we're just supposed to know how to pray. That so long as you're sincere and you love Jesus, prayer should just spontaneously, naturally happen for you, right? And I'm probably not allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways, okay? Sincerity is very overrated. Sincerity is very overrated. Y'all, there is more to life and faith than sincerity. Because you know what? You can sincerely suck at things. Like, y'all, I want to play the drums. I sincerely want to be a great drummer. But if I walk over there to that drum set right there, and I just start banging around on it in all my sincerity, what's going to happen? It's going to be terrible. Jordan will come out and sincerely strangle me with a guitar cord to save you all from the catastrophe. It doesn't matter that I'm sincere if I haven't practiced. And so instead of using our sincerity as an excuse, which we modern people do all the time, we've got to be humble and discipline so that we can learn how to believe more deeply in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by learning how to pray. Speaking of which, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. That is very hard to remember, but we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve the sun on our faces, the breath in our lungs, people who love us, people who forgive us. And so we just pause and say thank you. Most specifically, we are thankful for Jesus, for the way he has loved us and redeemed us. And so we pray in these moments, God, that you would help us to do what the church has done throughout all history, and that is to make sure that we receive this faith of our spiritual fathers and mothers instead of making it up. We pray that you would help us to believe in you, which doesn't mean we think this or that or the other about you. No, it means we act like you're the truth. We act like you're the way, the truth. And the life, we act like Jesus has explained you. And so, God, I pray for all my friends, all my new friends who you've gathered in this space and time today, that our hearts would be open to this work that you would want to do, and that we could all walk out of here believing more 
deeply in the God who called us, loved us, became flesh to save us and show us what you're like. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.